Stones from the Shepherd's Purse, Heavenly Musings from a Seasoned Open-Air Preacher, by Britt Williams. Dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Master Evangelist, who for the glory of God came to seek and save those who were lost, and whose methods are effective, above correction, and timeless, and to all those zealous yet often despised and disesteemed souls who take Christ's command to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, deathly serious, and risk reputation and comfort to fulfill their high calling. A Brief Testimony of the Conversion of Britt Williams Like most Americans, I assumed that I was a Christian simply because I was raised in a nominal Christian home. Unfortunately, I was woefully ignorant of the Bible's definition of true Christianity. When I was a younger, I attended church with my parents and even made a profession of the Christian faith. However, as a teenager, I became rebellious and contentious against God's standards of holiness. By my early twenties, I was living a life of drunkenness, drug abuse, fornication, and hatred. After attending college and a stint in the army, I was at rock bottom. In 1986, an acquaintance of mine was dramatically converted to Christianity, and this provoked me to examine my life in light of God's word. For the next year, I was under terrible, haunting conviction for my sinful and God-rejecting lifestyle. For the first time in my life, I saw my religious profession for what it was in reality, an empty, superficial lip service to a God I did not know. I began to realize that I had not met the most basic biblical conditions for salvation, nor was I truly submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord. Gradually, I was forced to acknowledge that even though I insisted that I was a Christian, I was nothing more than a sin-loving religious hypocrite. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2.4 I will never forget the gut-wrenching horror that seized me as the Holy Ghost methodically exposed the depth of my sinful state. I saw that I alone ran my life. I alone made every decision. I chose my own path. Moreover, my spiritual life was dismal. I neglected the house of God. I seldom read the Bible. I carelessly and unashamedly committed sin. Thus I could not deny the obvious. Though I profess to be a Christian, I rarely considered Jesus in my day-to-day -day activities. How humbling it was to finally acknowledge that I had utterly rejected the Lordship of Christ. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Luke 6.46 Likewise, I realized that I lacked the consciousness of a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. In essence, I had made myself a God. I was my own master and my own lord. I answered to no one, sought to please no one, and catered to no one but myself. Without doubt, I lived a life independent of the tangible power, presence, and authority of my Creator. Slowly, I began to understand that this is one sin alone constituted high treason against my holy Maker. The terror of this new understanding came over me, as I began to fully comprehend biblical discipleship. If I were to truly be a Christian, Jesus must be Lord, not merely the generic Lord of some distant future cosmic heaven, but he must become my personal Lord. This, 
I had never grasped before. As I began to honestly face the fact of my impending damnation, I could not shake the dark thoughts of doom and hopelessness. If I die, I will surely go to hell. I inwardly despaired. After much self-examination, I was utterly convinced that I was undone, lost, and hell-bound. Nevertheless, in my utter bondage and slavery to sin, I wrangled with God's Spirit as He urged me to forsake all wickedness and follow Christ. Furthermore, I wrestled with the cost of being a disciple. I now saw Christianity as a sober covenant with a holy God, rather than a casual affiliation with a religious creed. I knew to obtain the life of Jesus meant I must forfeit my own. For a period of time, I foolishly tried to evade the correction of God's Spirit. I spent many sleepless nights desperately seeking to shake the terrible guilt and shame of sin. Time and time again, I hardened my heart to God's gracious dealings. Thankfully, God was long-suffering and merciful, again and again bringing me face to face with my lost condition. One February night in 1987, while alone at home and tormented with conviction, I became keenly aware of my own sinfulness and brazen rebellion against the loving and holy God. Desperate in spirit, I knelt at my bedroom and cried out to God. I sensed God's presence and knew He demanded a full surrender of my life. For many months I had counted the cost of discipleship, but it was at this defining moment that I was brought to my spiritual break point. I perceived that God was confronting me with an ultimatum. It was now, or perhaps never. Like every true disciple before me, I am glad to report that by God's divine grace, I was able to lay down my life that night and follow the Master. After repenting of my sin and exercising faith in the finished work of Christ, I was gloriously born again, filled with the Holy Ghost, and instantly delivered of drunkenness, five different drug habits, perversion, and a myriad of other sins. I also knew that God had called me to preach. Immediately I was led by God's Spirit to a local church, and shortly thereafter God began to impress upon my heart to go into the streets with the gospel. God will never put a sword into a man's hand until he has by faith gone out to battle. If you want to learn the word of God, young man, then put it to practical use. B.W. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16.15 I began preaching in front of the bar rooms near Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and then later at the free speech area of campus. Since that time, God has allowed me the privilege of preaching the gospel all over America, as well as on foreign mission field. In 1995, under the direction of the Holy Ghost, I planted a church in Woodville, Mississippi, Consuming Fire Fellowship. Stones from the Shepherd's Purse Heavenly Musings from a Seasoned Open-Air Preacher by Britt Williams Chapter 1 A Sobering Evangelistic Quiz Mine eye affecteth mine heart. Lamentations 3.51 Imagine yourself in public, beholding a line of people as far as the eye could see. 
blindfolded and aimlessly falling into a pit of fire, men, women, and children alike, all plunging to their demise without resistance. You can smell the burning flesh, you can hear the tortured screams of those who are perishing in the flames. What would be the most loving response? Number one, ignore them, it's none of your business. Number two, deny their fate and instead appreciate the diverse manner in which they all have become blindfolded. Number three, pray for them. Number four, give them a bottle of water and a snack bar. Number five, invite them to a meeting of ex-blindfolded folks. Number six, hold a rock concert with an entrance fee and sing a few veiled references to the dangers of being blindfolded. Number seven, lift up your voice with passion, conviction, and urgency, warning them to take off their blindfolds and avoid their impending doom. If you choose number seven, you're using common sense. It is the most loving, logical, and appropriate action under the circumstances. Likewise, those who believe the scriptures and its sobering warnings of hellfire promised to unrepentant sinners act in accordance with their belief. They urge the wicked to repent, cast off the deception of sin, and warn them to flee to Christ and escape the wrath to come. On the other hand, those that who attack men that preach to sinners with passion, conviction, and urgency do so because they really do not believe the Bible, or that there is such a place as hell, otherwise they would act like it. What would the modern apostate church do with John the Baptist? God's burly desert evangelist, chosen to unveil the Lamb of God to a lost and sin-sick world. I fear many would be more than a little unsettled with his crude and insensitive ways. I can almost see them grim-faced and burdened with their misguided, humanistic sentiments standing in line to offer counsel, reproof, and much-needed lessons on the most up-to-date evangelistic etiquette. Oh, how we need to remember. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8-9 No doubt, if most Christians today were asked to sum up the gospel in five words or less, they would reply without hesitation, Jesus loves you. No real Christian would deny the fact of God's love expressed to mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. However, neither Jesus himself nor the apostles ever uttered these words as they preached the gospel. A close examination of the New Testament will reveal that the true gospel message and its method of delivery were much different than our current much improved and inoffensive version. Jesus was indeed motivated by love but he only speaks of God's love for humanity in six verses of the Gospels. In contrast, Jesus warned of hell, judgment, condemnation, and wrath in 163 verses in the same four Gospels. The book of Acts, which records more public propagation of the Gospel than any other book in the Bible with the exception of the Gospels, never mentioned the love of God. 
not in one public sermon by either Paul, Peter, Philip, or Stephen did they ever mention God's love. However, they mention the fear of God six times and repentance several times. Let me ask you, are we wiser than Jesus and the apostles? Are our methods scriptural? Whose gospel is out of balance? May we learn that it is more important for us to be motivated by love than to speak of love. The Bible says in 1 John 3.18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. If the watchmen see the sword come, and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Ezekiel 33.6 When criticized for his evangelistic methods, D.L. Moody responded, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Oh, people say, you must be very careful, very judicious. You must not thrust religion down people's throats. Then I say, you will never get it down. What, am I to wait till an unconverted, godless man wants to be saved before I try and save him? He will never want to be saved till the death rattle is in his throat. What, am I to let my unconverted friends and acquaintances drift down quietly to damnation and never tell them about their souls until they say, if you please, I want you to preach to me? Is this anything like the spirit of early Christianity? Catherine Booth we agree with the words of the great British Field Marshal, Bernard Montgomery, when he was asked, How do you interpret the Great Commission? He replied with these words, You do not interpret the Great Commission, you obey it. Chapter 2 Come, Stay, and Go As Christians, we often place enormous emphasis on the Great Commission, and rightfully so, as evangelism holds a high priority in the Kingdom of God. However, before we consider the command to go, we would be wise to acknowledge two prior commands of Christ, the command to come and the command to stay. We will never properly go if we don't first obey Jesus' commands to come and to stay. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged, if he gain the whole world, and lose himself, or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Father's, and of the holy angels. Luke 9, 23-26 Here in Luke's Gospel we see the command to come, or to follow. Indeed, if we are to accurately represent Jesus Christ, he must be Lord, and he must be our Lord. We cannot compel men to embrace what we ourselves have neglected.
If Jesus is not our Lord, we have absolutely no authority to press others into submission to a master whom we, moment by moment, shun. To do so is to play into the religious deception and hypocrisy so common in this hour. Hundreds of thousands of Americans profess to be Christians. Amazingly, the claims of revival are varied and numerous. Reports of mass conversions are typical in our day, yet our nation continues in its moral freefall. Never, at least in my lifetime, has there been a more hatred expressed for Jesus Christ and His Word than today. In the best of churches, evidence of spiritual compromise is abundant. From the pulpit to the pew, it appears a truce has been made with sin, the world, and the devil. Yet according to the latest polls, church attendance is up and all is considered well. Sadly, it is obvious there is great, a great discrepancy between our profession and our experience. I have come to understand that much of the church's problems can be traced to the quality of its beginnings. Many are simply not born of God. Unfortunately, there is a need to reacquaint ourselves with what it is meant in the Bible by the term salvation. Today, sinners are rarely made to see they must surrender all to partake in the life of Jesus. Few seem to understand that Jesus cannot be Savior if He is not first submitted to as Lord. He must be Lord of all, or He will not be Lord at all. How might we define Lordship? The Greek word translated Lord in the New Testament means supreme in authority, controller, master, to rule, to have dominion over, and to exercise lordship over. The Bible declares that the early church preached, not ourselves, themselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We must understand this preaching of Christ as Lord was more than mere words, but a demonstration of truth. They preached him as Lord because he was their Lord. They declared the word of God because the word of God governed their lives. We can never encourage others to submit to Jesus if we ourselves reject his sovereign rule in our lives. Above all, those who make Jesus Lord esteem God's word. The Bible is God's marvelous book. Contained therein are all things that pertain to life and godliness. Those who are submitted to the living word must therefore be submitted to the written word. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. John 8:47. This is an absolute. Those who have made Jesus Lord honor, reverence, and declare God's word. Sadly, we live in an hour when the word of God is depreciated in the eyes of many professing Christians. The worldly wise sages of our times have replaced sound scriptural teaching with light anecdotes and psychobabble. Oh, that they would believe the psalmist who wrote, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Psalm 119, 160. Hence, the Lordship of Christ is very practical and measurable obedience to the Bible. Men who refuse, ignore, or otherwise disesteem God's word have not made Jesus their Lord. The application for the open-air preacher, before we can be agents of God's grace to see others born of God, we must be born again ourselves. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8.14 Moreover, those who have made Jesus Lord are sensitive to God's Spirit. The Lordship of Christ is practically realized in the life of a believer by submission to the indwelling Spirit. When men fail to be led by the Spirit, it reveals that they have no genuine burden to follow Jesus. For to be led is essentially equivalent to following. To be led above everything requires conscious desire. If we desire to be led, we will be sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 What is the meaning of the anointing of the Holy Spirit? It is nothing less and nothing other than the Holy Spirit taking His place as Absolute Lord. The anointing carries with it the Absolute Lordship of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit as Lord. That means that all other Lordships have been disposed of and set aside. The Lordship of our own lives, the Lordship of our own minds, our own wills, our own desires, the Lordship of others. The lordship of every interest and every influence is regarded as having given place to the undivided and unreserved lordship of the Holy Spirit, and the anointing can never be known, enjoyed, unless that has taken place. T. Austin Sparks Now many mistake being led by the Spirit as something mystical, super-spiritual, and difficult to attain. But this is not so. If anyone can communicate, if anyone can make his mind to be known, certainly it is the Spirit of God. Any time men fail to know God's will, it's not because of a failure on God's part. No, the Holy Ghost is the master communicator, and those who have ears to hear will always hear His voice. In the wilderness, the children of Israel were provided a cloud by day and a fire by night. This is typical of the believer being led by the Spirit. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Exodus 13.22 This Old Testament example signifies many things, but primarily for our study, I want you to see that God's method of leading was unmistakable. The leadership of God was not obscure, ambiguous, or confusing but readily apparent to all that were interested. All that was necessary is that they see and follow. So it is with us. If Jesus is indeed our Lord, we are eager to be instructed by the ministry of God's Spirit. True saints, no matter how young, realize that they are called to be soldiers, not merely spiritual consumers or parasites. They recognize the need for God's Spirit to confront mold, shape, and discipline them into the vessel God intends. Hence, when men reject spiritual correction or balk at spiritual life, it is a sure sign that Jesus is not their Lord. Those who have made Jesus Lord are followers of their Master. Like their Lord, they may have enemies, and they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. They will understand the spiritual implications of separation and will rejoice to be a partaker in the sufferings of Christ. They will be mocked, misunderstood, and ridiculed. They will gladly embrace all those despised elements that distinguish the narrow way of holiness from the broad road of sinning religion. 
When this is absent, as it is in the lives of so many churchgoers, it reveals that Christ has not yet been crowned Lord. Let us examine ourselves. Let us ask ourselves the hard questions. Is Jesus indeed our Lord? For we can never compel men to come to a Christ we personally resist. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Romans 14, 8-9 Having addressed Christ's command to come, we now consider his directive to stay. Notice his words in Luke 24, 49. Tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is the heavenly equipping of power essential for effective ministry. No one is truly prepared to preach the gospel until they are baptized with the Holy Ghost. Consider what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The Greek word, dunamis, translated power, means force, especially miraculous ability. Indeed, the one spiritual characteristic that sets Pentecost apart is power. Now, power from on high is our most pressing need and Pentecost's greatest promise. As Jesus proclaimed in John's Gospel, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Power is the distinguishing mark of true Pentecost. Sweeping, enabling, invigorating, God-glorifying power. It provides divine power for service, praise, worship, prayer, preaching, and more. Indeed, it touches every aspect of the Christian life. This divine Holy Ghost power is the difference between God's ability and man's ability. It enables and lifts us up into the heavenly realm where God and angels dwell. It is that which makes the crook straight and the rough smooth. It bridges the gap between heaven and hell. People wonder, what's missing in our churches? What's missing in our preaching? The answer is plain. True, heaven-sent, fire-baptized Pentecost. Show me a man or a church filled with the Holy Ghost, and I'll show you a man or a church that cannot help but display, express, speak, and yes, go. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 7:38. A running fountain cannot be contained. Let God's people be filled with God's Spirit and they will be, and only then, equipped to declare the gospel. We are brought out to be brought in, apprehended to attain, redeemed to realize, and God intends for us to be utterly filled so we may completely fulfill. Pentecost is God's answer to a vessel born of the Spirit, washed in the blood and prepared for His glory. To be filled with the Spirit of the Lord is the church's appointed destiny. Now a lack of overcoming power is always an indication of a grieved Holy Ghost. God has never been glorified by sin or defeat. This gospel is a message of victory, yet we will never realize the victory if we violate God's pattern for victory. If the 120 on the day of Pentecost had to be filled with the Holy Ghost, 
then we are arrogant in the extreme if we suppose we can assume otherwise for ourselves. Thus, if we are not baptized with the Holy Ghost, we are unfit to preach the gospel. Indeed, if we do not stay, we cannot go. We now look at Christ's command to go. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16:15. As the church, we have been given the Great Commission. It is here we are called to go, and go we must. However, the question arises, what are we to do as we go? Obviously, we are to preach. Well, true enough, but what is it to preach? The Greek word, Russo, which is translated preach, means to herald as a public crier, to proclaim divine truth, though the modern apostate church, careful never to offend, consciously counsels us, don't be preachy, just let your life provoke questions. It is clear if we are to fulfill Christ's command, it will be necessary that we speak. In fact, if we fail to speak, God's mind will be obscured to our generation, a sobering and fearful prospect indeed. How then shall they call in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10:14. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21 Oh yes, Nineveh must have her Jonah, Cornelius must have his Peter, and our community must have a public crier to denounce sin and point men to Christ. Hence, we are to speak, and we are to speak exclusively for God. Yet, for this commandment to be fulfilled, certain things must take place. It is more than a matter of repeating carefully crafted statements and phrases. We must truly possess the mind of God. We must have a timely word, not merely biblical facts, but the living word of God relevant to the audience at hand. A word spoken in due season, how good is it? Proverbs 15:23. In this hour of wholesale spiritual compromise, when preachers are often too afraid to address the moral issues that challenge the church, and evangelists too humanistic to warn sinners with God's word, let us consider the dynamics of some of the most subtle methods used by pulpiters to cloak their cowardice. We must remember, a distinction should be made between biblical facts and the word of the Lord. The God-called preacher is obligated to give people not just facts from the scriptures, but the living word. By the living word we mean the scriptural truth God desires to apply to that particular people at that given moment. When a preacher merely gives men Bible facts rather than the word of the Lord, then he is not fulfilling his moral obligation to speak as the oracles of God. Biblical facts are general, while the word of the Lord is specific and often offensive. Moreover, scriptural truths are always biblical facts, but scriptural truths are not always the word of the Lord. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. 
but if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from their evil of their doings. Jeremiah 23:21-22. As an illustration, consider the following analogy. Suppose, as I am traveling along the highway, I see a gentleman who is pulled over on the curbside with his car's hood up, broken down with steam billowing from the ruptured radiator hose. As I pull up behind him and approach his vehicle to offer assistance, I reach in the back of my pickup truck and pull out a prize shovel. After greeting the man, I begin to very methodically expound on the virtues and multiple uses of my shovel. All the while, his immediate problem is ignored. Now, no matter how thorough and how accurate my discourse on the shovel has been, I have not addressed the problem at hand. Indeed, everything I said is accurate, but it does my hearer little immediate good, as he has no urgent need for a shovel. I have given the man truth, but I not give him the truth he needed right now. You may say, but you did not lie. No, of course not. Again, you may ask, isn't what you said factual? Yes, but the help I offered did not confront the very issue that has sidelined this stranded traveler. I have given this unfortunate man some facts, but failed to give him the truth that will address and remedy his current condition. Likewise, all over America, men stand in pulpits and spew biblical facts, but refuse to give the people what they need. What is the word of the Lord? So often this is the case with false teachers. It is not so much what they say, but what they refuse to say that defines their error. True, they may not be propagating flagrant and outright lies, but they are not allowing God for various reasons to speak directly to the issues at hand. Compromising preachers often inwardly attempt to soothe their inflamed conscience on this ground. Even though I avoid the controversy and persecution that accompanies confronting sin headlong, I still preach or teach orthodox doctrine. I have a sober warning for you, Mr. Snake Oil. You may fool men, but you will never fool God. He called you as a mouthpiece so he sh could declare the sin-exposing and life-giving truth to his people. Will you cont continue to get in his way? Men who were truly sent by God give men the truth that makes free. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Romans 1, 14-15 No doubt we have a moral obligation to preach the gospel to our neighbor. Nevertheless, always remember we are not called to convince men we love them, only to love them. There is a vast difference. Consider the ministry of John the Baptist, whom God initially chose to introduce Israel to Jesus. Notice the introduction to the prophetic foretelling of his ministry by the prophet Isaiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Isaiah 41. John ministered to Israel in a day when she was sorely oppressed by the Roman Empire. It was a day of calamity, a day of spiritual decline, vexation, and trouble. However, 
What was the comfort John preached to his troubled nation? O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Luke 3, 7-9 We do well to remember God's definition of comfort and man's definition of comfort are vastly different. Moreover, notice how John boldly linked Israel's trouble with her moral failure. Generally speaking, the last thing men want to hear in times of trouble is reproof for their sins. Hence, it will always be unpopular to confront sinners with divine truth. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Jeremiah 6, 10 when preaching the gospel to wicked men, my aim is to leave them with two distinct impressions. First, there is hope in Jesus. Second, there is absolutely no hope without him. Yet we must be like the prophet Ezekiel who was told, whether they forbear or whether they hear, speak and tell them thus saith the Lord. As God judges America for her sins, Will he find a mouthpiece to voice his truth? When thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Isaiah 26, 9 Considering recent events in our nation, I believe God's hand is revealed. But will his mouth speak? Indeed, he has a suitable rod, but will he find a holy mouthpiece? But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned. If the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Ezekiel 33.6 May we as faithful servants obey Christ's commands to come, stay, and then go. Chapter 3 The Everlasting Gospel And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven, and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for ever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14, 6-12 When establishing conclusions about evangelism, we would do well to allow the scriptures, rather than popular opinion, to frame our definitions. Sadly, there is a raging debate today in regards to the interpretation of the gospel. Wicked men, inspired by evil spirits of religion, have somehow crept into the church, subtly tampering with how the gospel is perceived. In some circles, the gospel has been so mishandled, misappropriated, and reinvented that it hardly is recognizable when compared to the New Testament. Unfortunately, confusion often reigns as to the real message and method of the gospel. Amazingly, all that's necessary to offend many professing Christians today is to simply preach the gospel to them. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11.3 If we're to stay true to Jesus Christ, it will be required that we repeatedly go back to the Bible to regain our spiritual bearings. This is exactly what we will do in this chapter as we examine the everlasting gospel. The Greek word translated everlasting literally means eternal, perpetual, past, present, and future. The Greek word translated throughout the New Testament into our English word gospel means good message or good news. These definitions only tell us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good, holy, virtuous, and right. To this we agree. However, by examining our text, I believe we gain a deeper insight into the biblical gospel. I see five specifics gleaned from this passage that will enlighten us to a clear understanding of the true gospel, namely, the messengers, the audience, the method, the message, and the response to the everlasting gospel. The messengers and I saw another angel, Revelation 14:6. Notice the preachers in our text are not men, but angels. Now we know angels are holy, heavenly, and sinless beings. This is an important observation for our thought for two reasons. First, because it irrefutably verifies their message as pure and flawless. No one can accuse them of succumbing to the flesh or error. No one can say they had ulterior motives. Secondly, it establishes without question an unchanging requirement of practical holiness for the gospel preacher. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12:14. How will we point men to Jesus without walking in practical holiness? Any sin, flesh, compromise, or rebellion will defile the gospel declaration. The message is only as credible as the messenger. If we are going to accurately represent Jesus Christ, we must become the gospel we preach. The gospel messenger must be holy. The audience. 
having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. Revelation 14.6 The scriptures clearly establish only one eternal, unchanging, unalterable gospel of Christ. However, today a false yet popular concept is being promoted advocating a diversity of messages and methods within the gospel. Many say we must consider our audience. We must appeal to the felt needs of culture or class. This is a lie. There is only one universal message to all mankind, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The problem with a 16th century peasant or a 21st century executive is the same. Sin. Likewise, there is but one answer, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John 1.29 There is no greater fallacy than to think that you need a gospel for special types of people. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones The Method Saying with a loud voice. Revelation 14.7 Notice, the message is delivered with authority and boldness. In a word, it was preached. Preaching, by strict biblical definition, is to publicly herald. Notice, the angel here isn't timid, but delivers his message with boldness, with clarity, and in a loud voice. He fails to adhere to the advice so often heard by professing Christians today. Why, it's not wise to shout at folks. People won't listen. Hallelujah! God's word reveals a higher wisdom. Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. Proverbs 1.20 We must understand the gospel is not a suggestion, but a proclamation. It is to be sounded with authority. The Apostle Paul coveted prayer from the Ephesian church in regards to his gospel delivery, saying, That therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians 6.20 Again, the spirit of religion hates life, and life is often manifested by spiritual authority, activity, and excitement. If we believe what we preach, how can we do so without showing passion and zeal? A ministry that saves people from sin and prepares them for heaven must be a serious ministry. No light gospel can meet the serious demands of this serious work. The gospel of fun may draw but cannot save, may please but not edify. The gospel never appeals to the fun-loving side of our nature. Its work is done by restraining or ignoring the lighter elements and basing its operations on the profound and weighty elements of our being. Christ and his gospel are the most serious expressions of God. It is the gospel of the cross, bathed in tears and blood, and crowned with death. Christ's gospel can only reach and save by breaking hearts. E. M. Bounds Our method must conform our rhetoric. If we believe in a burning hell, then we will passionately act accordingly. Emotion, pathos, and alarm will ring true in our preaching and warning will be emphasized. Make no mistake, old-fashioned fire and brimstone preaching is affirmed by the Bible.
the message, four elements for our consideration, saying with a loud voice, Revelation 14.7, the fear of God, fear God, Revelation 14.7, first, the angels preaches the fear of God. Sadly, the fear of God is an unpopular doctrine in this hour of apostasy, yet it is a foundational doctrine of the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 9.10 True conversion to Christ is impossible apart from the fear of God. By the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Proverbs 16.6 in this hour, the God that is presented with from most pulpits is impossible to fear. He tolerates sin rather than judging it. However, Jesus himself encouraged the fear of God. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Luke 12:5. The faithful preacher is the man who truly unveils the nature of God, who preaches the Christ to whom men must give an account. Number two, give God glory. And give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Revelation 14:7. Always and always God must be first. The gospel in its scriptural context puts the glory of God first and the salvation of man second. A.W. Tozer To give God glory is to render to him what is rightfully his. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20 this is the message of obedience and holiness. Again, the message of holiness is a hated message. The popular theology of today teaches that grace frees us from our obligation to fulfill the moral law. As John Wesley stated in his day, the antinomians erroneously say that a preacher ought not to exhort to good works, not unbelievers, because it is hurtful not believers because it is needless. The false gospel makes little or no claim upon the sinner's life, yet Jesus clearly said, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10:38. Notice why should men give God glory? For the hour of his judgment is come. Revelation 14, 6-7. The everlasting gospel always contains an urgent call for men to prepare to meet God in judgment. Number three, exposing and condemning false religion. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Revelation 14.8 In the Bible, Babylon always represents spiritual confusion false religion, and counterfeit Christianity. It is difficult to exalt what is right before we expose what is wrong. How can we proclaim truth without uncovering error? Evil men understand not judgment. Proverbs 
The true gospel preacher will address the deceptions of the day. He will point out the evils of Rome, Catholicism and all its insidious and subtle spiritual offspring, as well as the horrible errors of modern-day evangelical Christianity. This has always been the apostolic pattern. Notice Paul's confession in Acts 20. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, and remember, that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. Acts 20, 30, 31. Number 4. Warning of Hellfire The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture in the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Revelation 14, 9-11 Hell is another unpopular subject. Yet, not only here, but elsewhere in the New Testament, God's messengers were never afraid to proclaim its existence and purpose. We cannot preach the gospel if we refuse to warn men of God's eternal judgment against all sin. In fact, avoiding God's judgment is a mark of the false prophet. They say still unto them that despise me, The Lord hath said, Ye shall have peace. And they say unto every one that walketh after their imagination of his own heart, No evil shall come upon you. Jeremiah 23:17. Finally, the response. Amazingly, we see no response. This debunks the false concept that teaches, if it is truly the gospel, if God's Spirit anoints the message, someone will respond. However, I believe it teaches us another very important principle. We must realize, men are never prepared to receive grace until they first see their sin rightly. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Luke 17, 26-27 Evermore the law must prepare the way for the gospel. To overlook this in instructing souls is almost certain to result in a false hope. The introduction of a false standard of Christian experience and to fill churches with false converts. Charles Finney The man who does not know the nature of the law cannot know the nature of sin, and he who does not know the nature of sin cannot know the nature of the Savior. John Bunyan. They will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Remember, it is God's word that refers to our text as the everlasting gospel. Some may ask, do you call this gospel preaching? Why, there is no mention of the atonement or forgiveness or love. How can this be? No doubt, these aspects are essential to the gospel. We cannot deny this. However, the first oracle of the gospel declaration is repent. If men fail to acknowledge their sin and agree with God, it is futile to move forward. If they refuse the diagnosis, 
They are ill-prepared for the remedy. Hence, if we stand in the public with a pure heart, preaching, Thou shalt not, and men refuse to acknowledge the truth of God's law, God still considers our effort as gospel declaration. This is vastly different than what we hear today. Are we surprised? Are we willing to be used by God to utter the true gospel message? Chapter 4 Preaching God's Ordained Method How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, and bring glad tidings of good things. Romans 10, 14-15 for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21 Even a casual study of the Bible reveals the person of God is methodical. Indeed, he is concerned with detail, order, and purpose. Jesus reminds us that God is very much aware of even the seemingly mundane. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Luke 12:7. However, today's theology promotes a deity who seems disordered, haphazard, and unconcerned with specifics. Nothing could be more untrue of the Almighty. When God told Noah to build an ark, he gave him detailed instructions, including the dimensions, how tall, long, and wide, the placement of the door and window, and even the materials to use, pitch and gopher wood, etc. So specific were the plans for the tabernacle in the wilderness that it addressed the color of the linens and the hems in the priestly garments. Solomon's temple was a complex architectural project. Do we suppose God would simply bless just any four walls thrown together? Time and time again we see Israel defeating her enemies, but only when her leaders adhered to the strict battle orders of God. The Bible reveals that the true work of God will always be preceded by adherence to the design and method of God. In other words, God never commands men to do without telling them how to do. Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, is referred to as the way. This confirms that God has a very specific model, a divine system, if you will, in executing his eternal purposes. To suggest that God will reward or otherwise overlook spiritual sloppiness is to deny the plain biblical facts. No man has the liberty to deviate from this way or Christ and call himself a Christian. And remember, narrow is the way. As a spiritual manual, God has given us his word. As a divine guide, he has given us his spirit. In all things, we must be conformed to the word and led by the Spirit. This alone constitutes the way. The man that fears God realizes that the slightest deviation from Christ will reap the gravest repercussions. Likewise, in evangelism, it's not just the desire to do, but evangelizing the way God reveals that it should be done. Obedience in the Great Commission is not only a willingness to declare God's message, 
but also surrendering to the method and way God wants his message delivered. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. John 14, 23. It means following God's prescribed instructions, regardless of popular opinion or the nature of the response. However, the great problem with the professing church today is her independence from God and her uneasiness with His Word. When confronted with biblical evangelism, most churchgoers today say you will never win anyone to Jesus with these methods, or they will suspiciously ask, how many people have you prayed with today? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, absurdity, silly, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The modern church, in her failure to obey the Great Commission according to the biblical pattern, professes to be wiser than Jesus himself. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 16.25 Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Jeremiah 6.16 I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Acts 26.9 In this chapter, I want to look at two absolutes expressed in the Word of God regarding God's plan for evangelism. Preaching is God's ordained means to communicate the gospel. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21 How can we define preaching? In the original languages, the words generally translated preach or preaching literally mean to call out, to cry, to proclaim, to pronounce, to publish, a herald or public crier. Moreover, we also have the record of scripture to define itself in regards to preaching. We have many examples of preaching given to us in the Bible. When Jesus commanded us to go into all the world and preach, he didn't mean to have puppet shows or rock concerts or bingo night. No, he meant to do as he did, adhering to the definition of preaching framed by God's word and the examples contained therein. Preaching can have no substitute or rivals. To discount or retire it is to discount and retire God. He inbounds. The pattern is confirmed by Christ, the living way, as well as the apostles and the early church. Jesus came into Galilee preaching, which is a herald or public crier. Mark 1.14 when Christ came on the scene, he was a public crier, a herald of divine truth, a preacher of the gospel. He didn't concentrate on the ecclesiastical order of accepted religion, nor did he address the higher criticisms of celebrated education. He came preaching, lifting up his voice in the open air to the common man. Apart from Jesus' de deity, his next leading characteristic was his identity as a preacher. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach. 
Luke 4:18. Thus, Jesus is the pattern. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4:17. There is no plan B. There is no alternative or less offensive scheme. God ordained preaching. Christ demonstrated the Father's mind, and now he commands his church to follow. Some might argue, such archaic and outdated methods will never reach the masses. The salvation of the human soul was impressed upon me. I felt ablaze with a desire to go through the length and breadth of Wales to tell of the Savior, and had it been possible, I was willing to pay God for doing so. Evan Roberts Jesus didn't have a promoter, a rock band to open his meetings, or a radio station to advertise his miracles. Yet the Bible says, And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. Luke 4.37 This does not mean he was popular. It means he was well known, and his reputation preceded him. When the apostles left the upper room filled with the Holy Ghost, they didn't change God's method but instead were given power to fulfill it. And he commanded us to preach unto the people, and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Acts 10.42 When the early church was persecuted because of the unpopularity of their master and their message, they didn't alter God's plan, but... They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Acts 8.4 Just because sinners declare, we don't like preaching, it turns me off. This does not give us a license to alter God's ordained means to communicate the gospel. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.2 we simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace, as well as the steeple of the church. We are recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at a crossroad so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble because that is where he died and that is what he died about and that is where churchmen ought to be and what churchmen should be about george mcleod oh to god that the church would once again find herself in the highways and the byways where god ordained her to be sadly instead of preaching the gospel the modern church has sought to market the gospel bending it to appease the spiritual palate of sinful man. Who are we to question the divine genius of God Almighty? Preaching is God's governmental wisdom in action. As representatives, ambassadors for God's kingdom, we go unwelcome, unwanted, and uninvited, using legal terms such as judge, judgment, witness, false witness, testimony, testify, pardon. We must make sinners cognizant of their impending doom by the sting of God's holy law and offer the only remedy for their sin, Jesus Christ and Him crucified.
We are charged to go, and we must obey. Without preaching, the gospel cannot be heard. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Romans 10, 14-15 This passage is explicit. Without biblical preaching, there can be no salvation. Why are there so little conversions in this hour? Perhaps it is because there is so little real preaching. Without the holy proclamation of God's word, sinners will remain in darkness, bondage, and death. The city is going to hell. Yes, the world is going to hell, and must go on till the church finds out what to do to win souls. Charles G. Finney The only hope for our generation is holy men filled with the Holy Ghost declaring this holy gospel. We are debtors to all the world. We are called to warn everyone, to exhort everyone, if by any means we might save some. John Wesley Notice, the preacher must be sent, meaning three things. He must be prepared, he must be God-ordained, and he must go. Where is the preacher and the evangelist going? The passage doesn't say the sinner is coming to the preacher. Rather, the preacher is bringing the gospel to the sinner. The true evangelist is sent. He's going out. He's walking among. He's bringing the word. He's confronting the sinner on his own ground. Many protest. That's not my calling. I beg your pardon. If you will simply read the Bible and believe it. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Luke 14.23 The entire church is under the obligation to fulfill the Great Commission, which simply means every local church must be dedicated to biblical evangelism. Those who affected their generation for God were those who prayed and those who preached. Moses speaks to Israel, because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Deuteronomy 32.3 God used Gideon to speak. Now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people. Judges 7.3 Truly godly wisdom lifts her voice in public. Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse. Proverbs 1, 20-21 Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places, by the way, in the places of the path. She crieth at the gates, and at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Proverbs 8, 1-3 Isaiah the prophet said, Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, Shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. Isaiah 13.2 The prophet Ezekiel was encouraged to go and to speak. Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. It shall be upon all the princes of Israel. Terrorists, by reason of the sword, shall be upon my people. Smite therefore upon thy thigh. 
Ezekiel 21.12 The prophet Joel was told, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Joel 3.9 Jonah was sent to a wicked city. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Jonah 1.2 And the list goes on and on. In fact, every preacher in the Bible, every last one, was an open-air preacher. Church, if we don't go, who will? How shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10.14 May God give us grace to embrace God's ordained method of evangelism, preaching. No sort of defense is needed for preaching outdoors. But it would take a very strong argument to prove that a man who has never preached beyond the walls of his meeting house has done his duty. A defense is required for services within buildings rather than for worship outside of them. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. Chapter 5 the cost of true evangelism. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 57-62 the testimony of Scripture reveals that very few who were confronted with Christ's call to follow actually accepted the challenge. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14:27. The Scriptures clearly establish the fact that those who refuse Jesus' discipline cannot be referred to as Christians as discipleship is a requirement for Christianity. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is often referred to as Savior. However, he can only be intimately known on the ground of Lordship. We cannot have his life if we are unwilling to forfeit our own. We cannot save our own life and simultaneously exalt his. Thus, the spiritual cost is leveled against every potential disciple who dare take the slightest step toward Christ. The old life must be displaced by the new, and anything short of such a spiritual commitment will end in shame and reproach. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Luke 14.28 Likewise, every facet of Christian discipleship has its specific cost. Evangelism is no exception. If we are to truly preach the gospel as it should be preached, we must understand and accept the cost. 
Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Luke 10.2 Now to preach the gospel is to exalt Christ. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. John 12.32 Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14.6 Hence, we cannot say we are exalting Christ while we soften the blow or otherwise obscure the truth. There can be no liberty, no freedom apart from the plain declaration of divine truth. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8.32 Truth is expressed exclusively in the scriptures. Therefore the gospel cannot be accurately preached apart from a proclamation of God's word. This is what is meant by telling the truth. The true soul winner is a man who is willing to tell the truth. A faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Proverbs 14.5 A true witness delivereth souls, but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. Proverbs 14.25 Ironically, today the claims of mass conversions abound, while the popularity for truth-telling continues to plummet. Something is amiss. A man who has told us the truth is a man who has applied God's word to our lives, and this is very, very unpopular. In a nutshell, truth-telling constitutes biblical evangelism. Two times in the New Testament, the cost of telling the truth is mentioned. If we will be effective witnesses for Jesus, we will face these two repercussions for our faithfulness. Truth-telling can be discouraging, and because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. John 8.45 The more faithful you are to communicate and express the truth of God's word, the more ineffective you will seem. Truth alone can set men free, but it's the one thing that most refuse to hear. The lying prophet always seems to have more immediate results because his message is gutted of all the spiritual cost. Only eternity will reveal the great gulf between the potential that truth has to deliver and the utter inability of anything less. In reality, the truth is always spiritually effectual because it accomplishes the will of God. It always works its eternal ramifications. When applied under the unction of God's Spirit, there is no escaping the divine effects of gospel truth on the human heart. Truth as light can reveal, expose, or blind. Truth as salt can preserve, but it can also ruin. Truth as a hammer can shatter as well as break. In Isaiah 6, we see this distinction of the effects of truth revealed in the commission of the prophet. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Isaiah 6.10 This is the same prophet that lamented in chapter 53, after many years of truth-telling. Who hath believed our report? Isaiah 53, 1.
Oh, the mystery and the horror of the eternal influences of God's truth on the human spirit. It will feed and strengthen the hungry soul, while it will offend, deceive, and slay the insincere. However, we must understand, it is not so much how it's applied, but rather how it is received that dictates its effect. Truth can destroy, or it can deliver, depending on how we respond to its eternal demands. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Matthew 21, 44. What is Jesus seeking to communicate in the above words? He is warning us, the stone doesn't change. Whether we like it or not, whether man agrees or disagrees, the nature of the truth remains constant, immutable, and unyielding. Nothing is wrong with the rock, but with the whosoever. Nothing is wrong with the truth or the truth teller, only how men react to that truth. The man who longs to be faithful to God in evangelism simply must be content to tell the truth. When we purpose in our hearts to give folks the naked truth, the opportunities for discouragement are plenteous. We will be misunderstood, our motives will be doubted, our compassion and love questioned. It takes courage to wound men with the truth. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27, 6 Few will believe what we say, meaning not many will accept, take up as their own, subject themselves to, and readily follow. Our spiritual efforts to be witness and a blessing will appear unproductive at best. Nonetheless, let us be encouraged in the way of our Lord. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. John 8:45. Truth-telling will earn you many enemies. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Galatians 4:16. The more faithful we are to communicate and express the truth of God's word, the less popular we will be. If we are faithful to express the truth of God's word, we will garner the labels of harsh, unloving, insensitive, and unmerciful. In the natural, the eye that is not exercised and exposed to light loses its power to focus. Likewise, when people refuse to come to the light, they lose the ability to see in the spirit. Now darkness always provokes the worst kind of fear. Out of such fear, men will indiscriminately strike out to protect themselves. When the truth of God's word comes, either in the gospel to the sinner or in the doctrine to the saint, it comes to reveal Christ. Indeed, more of Christ always demands less of us. Hence, the truth of God's word always presents the cross to accomplish this end. I have heard men accuse the truth, spirit-anointed preaching of God's word as hateful. Perhaps such accusations are rooted in some truth as wayward men sense the unwavering demand of the cross thundering in their conscience. The cross is God's ordained instrument of execution for the criminals of self and sin. The cross never comes to slay Christ, nor torture others. It always demands its proper victim, me. This is an unpopular message and will earn the most violent of reactions. Self-preservation 
always provokes the most rigorous self-defense. Men who are otherwise peaceful and serene can be aroused to the most horrid violence to save their own lives. Hence, we should consider the price of preaching the gospel uninvited and often unwanted. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. John 7, 7 But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. John 8, 40 Eloquent words and kind expressions don't necessarily minister life to anyone. In fact, it can be the exact opposite. By good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Romans 16:18. It takes courage and resolve to tell people what may motivate them to hate you. But they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. Jeremiah 9:3. However, as Christians, let us be encouraged with the instruction of our Lord. In Matthew 10, Jesus commissioned the twelve and commanded them to preach. Then he warned them of the cost of telling the truth. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents, and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you and their skin gobs. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Matthew 10, 16-18 And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. And he shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Matthew 10, 22 Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the house sums. Matthew 26-27 Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Matthew 10:34. The reason for the reaction is that our message reveals Christ, or the truth. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Matthew 5:11. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts 9:16. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. 1 Corinthians 4:10. If we will preach this gospel we will earn many enemies. There are many fields out there that most will never tread, let alone consider to plow. We must count the cost of biblical evangelism. Are we truly prepared to be a witness for Christ as he was for the Father? For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, form yourselves likewise with the same mind. 1 Peter 4.1 over the years, I have heard teaching after teaching on how to evangelize that essentially establish the humanistic points like be nice, polite, and respectful, smile, be positive, and make a good first impression, dress sharp, comb your hair, and shine your shoes. 
use breath mints and deodorant and avoid the negative. Shamefully, such nonsense is more akin to seminars for used car salesmen than instruction on biblical evangelism. A recent article featured in a popular Christian magazine offered tips on the do's and don'ts of witnessing to homosexuals. Do's. Know your pastor's and denomination's official position. Invite speakers to address your church. Stick to verifiable facts. Admit error. We have made we have made mistakes. Stay flexible when discussing theories, but adamant when discussing the Bible. Show Christian love. Don'ts. Do not attack people. Do not stereotype people. Do not use cliches. Notice, this well-respected and popular Christian magazine, like the rest of the apostate church world, gives us very little encouragement to simply tell the truth. Why? Obviously because it makes enemies. If we wish to preach God's word, then be warned, we will be hated, mocked, ridiculed, perhaps jailed, and maybe even killed. No matter our field of labor, being faithful to the truth will gain us many enemies. There is a cost if we will follow God's prescribed method of evangelism. We will be tempted to be discouraged, and often we will be hated. Let us pray for grace and courage. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20:24. 20, there is that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are pointed thereunto. First Thessalonians three three.